Most weeks when we gather live together, we review the cycle that forms the plotline to the book of Jeremiah. The cycle of God inviting people to be special, to join in the work of reflecting God's character to the world in how they worship and also how they treat each other. This is followed by the people going their own way, going after idols they think might better protect or provide for them. The idolatry leads to injustice. Rampant and sometimes heinous actions become accepted. Prophets then are sent by God with God's message, and the message is always, turn back, come home. But the message also includes the warning that if you don't turn back, consequences and destruction are coming. And people ignore or attack the prophets. The destruction comes, and it's terrible. In Jeremiah's case, this is exile, when Babylon conquers them. And exile can sound almost tidy, like it's just a trip to a new land that you wouldn't choose to live in. But the people were conquered, killed, their children were murdered. It was the warfare and bloodshed that for some of us has marked our ideas of what the Old Testament is actually about. And for many of us, we've had to then work out what we do with the violence in the Old Testament. Especially the ways that at times God ushers in that violence, both against the nations around them and then at times at Israel. Today, we're wading into that. We're exploring the real elements of Jeremiah where God's wrath is in action. When it comes to these passages, we have two basic commitments. One, avoiding them won't help us. These are in the Bible. They have shaped our view of God, sometimes enough to drive people we know and love away from God entirely so we can't skip them or gloss over them. Two, they have been incorporated, these passages, into the wrong storyline. If they are events in a story about an exacting, perfectionistic God, then wrath means certain things. But we're of the mind that that is the wrong story in the first place. It isn't a good interpretation of God's work in the world through the Old Testament narrative. And so today, we are going to try to thoughtfully engage with the destruction and the wrath. But we want to keep it in the right storyline. That's our goal. Our goal is not to assuage our discomfort. That might still remain at the end. Our goal is not to have a tidy answer to a complicated theme. Our goal is to have a thoughtful exploration of a difficult topic, but be sure that we are considering it as part of the right storyline. So here we go. Meredith and I are always happy when Sundays come around, not because of the church and worshiping with you all, but because it's the only day of the week when we actually know what day of the week it is in this Groundhog Day existence that we're living here. What I'm saying is it's been a strange three months. 23 months? 13 months? 103 months? What is time, anyway? What's interesting is that while to us it feels kind of like we're running on the slowest moving treadmill of all time, there's also some massive shifts going on in our broader society. Maybe the biggest, at this point most controversial, example of this is the growing movement to defund the police. Those people who are calling for, in some cases, completely abolishing, and in other cases, dramatically narrowing the duties of and reallocating the budget of police forces. And you don't need to agree with the aims of the people who are leading this movement, and I'm sure we have some people listening who do and some who don't, but you don't have to agree with the aims to understand the thinking. People, especially black people, have been trying to draw attention to the abuses of certain aspects of police departments for decades. The Black Panthers were formed in the 60s primarily as a response to police violence. 
on the much, much more frivolous side, it's a cliched TV movie plotline and has been for decades there, where there's a corrupt police force where the corruption goes all the way to the top. And yet nothing seems to be changing. And so it's understandable that some people look at that situation and say, look, at some point, just trying to shore up a shaky building doesn't work anymore. You just have to tear the whole structure down and start over again. Again, even if you don't agree that we should do that in this situation, you can understand the logic of it. Going further back in our nation's history, there were any number of attempts to gradually phase out slavery or reform it in acceptable ways. Oh, I know, we'll ban the transatlantic slave trade and it'll die out on its own. It didn't. In 1780, actually, Pennsylvania passed a law that would automatically free slaves after they had lived in the state for at least six months. There. Perfect example of gradual reform. It'll take care of it. Well, then President George Washington lived in Philadelphia at the time, and so every, oh, five months and 29 days, let's say, his slaves would just happen to travel back down to Virginia to Mount Vernon and be replaced by other slaves. This is just one of many examples of how making little changes around the edges of a status quo that is as entrenched as slavery was, was never going to work. The status quo has incredible inertia. And in the end, it took a cataclysmic war to upend the social structures enough to actually end slavery. Although, well, if you know much about the history of the South after Lincoln's assassination, even after the cataclysm of the Civil War, an awful lot of the social structure snapped right back into place, with now freed black people in situations that sure did resemble slavery in a lot of the particulars. Far more often than not, big, sweeping societal change comes only through cataclysm. And not always war. Just recently, scientists discovered evidence of a massive volcanic eruption in the first century BC in Alaska, which may have caused the famines and instability in the Mediterranean region that led to the Roman Republic falling and then the Roman Empire rising to power. The unrest that the volcanic eruption had caused resulted in Caesar Augustus taking advantage of that unrest to seize control of much of Europe, the Near East, and North Africa. In that case, it was a cataclysm of natural causes. We kind of know this from our own lives too, don't we? The status quo has huge inertia. Even when we want so badly to make changes in our lives, to be healthier and happier, we just can't escape the gravitational pull of the status quo. Old habits die hard and all that. And often it's only some massive disruption in our lives that forces us to make changes because otherwise they don't happen. So now what does this all have to do with Jeremiah? Well, we've been going through this book for 103 months now. No, 23 months? <laughs> what is time? Judah's society is a mess, at least from God's perspective. The status quo is one of idolatry and injustice of the people having placed their trust in anything but God or anything plus God which is almost the same thing. And God has warned and warned, sent prophet after prophet, begged for the people to turn around. And we've seen that this is not some arbitrary reaction by God. God is concerned about the quality of Israel's society because God's whole plan for the world, that God would partner with people to build a world that would be filled with the goodness and justice of God, that whole plan depends on God's people being filled themselves, not only individually, but also collectively filled themselves with the goodness and justice of God. God wants to partner with people 
to build a world filled with the goodness and justice of God. But the plan depends on God's people being filled themselves, individually and collectively, with the goodness and justice of God. So if the people of God have walked away, the plan can't move forward. God's goodness and justice are stuck. The world will not ever be just. There will never be holistic peace, shalom, goodness. The status quo, the idolatrous, unjust, demonic status quo would win. God has been ignored in Jeremiah, and the status quo marches on. This is the backdrop for Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 30 to 38 which is, as you'll see, quite similar to many passages in the first half of this book. Jeremiah is told to warn all the kings of the earth, not just the people of Judah, but all the kings of this. You're to prophesy all these things to them and say to them, Yahweh roars from on high. From God's holy dwelling, God gives voice. God roars and roars against God's abode, meaning the earth. God chants a cry like grape treaders to all earth's inhabitants. The noise has come to the end of the earth because Yahweh has a contention against the nations. God is doing justice towards all flesh. The faithless, God is giving them the sword. Yahweh's words. Yahweh armies has said this. There is evil, and this is evil in the sense of bad stuff, disaster coming. Not like evil in the sense of Satan is coming. There is evil going out. From nation to nation, a great storm arises from earth's remotest parts. People slain by Yahweh on that day will be from the end of the earth to the end of the earth. They won't be lamented or gathered up and buried. They will become dung on the surface of the ground. Howl, you shepherds, cry out, throw yourselves about, lords of the flock, because the days of your slaughter are fully here. I'll scatter you and you'll fall like a precious bowl. Flight will perish from the shepherds, escape from the lords of the flock. The sound of the shepherds cry, the howls of the lords of the flock, because Yahweh is destroying their pastures. The meadows with their well-being will be ruined through the burning of Yahweh's anger. God has abandoned the thicket like a lion, because the country has become a devastation, because of the oppressor's blazing, because of God's blazing wrath. We've talked about how much of the destruction in Jeremiah is presented as the natural consequence of the peoples having walked away from God. You walk away from life, that means you walk towards death. You abandon the one who protects you from more powerful nations, well, those nations will destroy you. But there is also some aspect in Jeremiah of God's activity, too. God's blazing wrath going out onto the people. God's blazing wrath, not a comfortable topic. And here's the thing. That's kind of the point. Because, as we talked about last week, God has spent centuries inviting the people to return, warning them of what is coming if they don't, begging for them to come home. And they haven't. If anything, they've gone further away. And so now God has a choice. Keep warning, keep calling out, which means who knows how many centuries more of injustice and oppression, Who knows how many millions or billions of people living under a status quo of injustice? Who knows how many lives exploited for the benefit of the powerful? Who knows how horribly things would go wrong in those centuries? God can allow injustice to win. For the oppressive status quo to go on forever, building its unstoppable inertia. Or God can do something drastic. God can bring cataclysm upon God's own people to upend their status quo. 
God can destroy the inertia of the status quo, which can only happen through the destruction of the whole structure of society. Otherwise, it'll snap right back into place. That's the choice. But the thing is, I don't believe that allowing injustice to go on forever is actually an option for God. And so all that's left then is wrath. God holds off and holds off and holds off, but eventually can't hold off any longer. We've seen how the status quo grieves God's heart, but we've also seen in Jeremiah how the destruction that God is bringing on the people hurts just as much, maybe more. God knows that some major disruption is needed to reset things. This whole societal structure needs to burn to the ground so that something new can be built on the other side. There is no other way. God tried all the other ways, and they didn't work. And that's where God's wrath happens. God's wrath is the disruptive, destructive force that says no more to unjust, oppressive, idolatrous societies. Not because God really wants to cause pain to people, but because the destructive force is the only way by which a new society might be built that won't cause pain to people. God's wrath is a recognition that the inertia of the status quo in our individual lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of our society as a whole, the inertia of the status quo can get so powerful that nothing but destruction can upend it. Nothing but cataclysm, rock bottom, can open the possibility for a future and a hope. But understanding that doesn't make the wrath any easier for God or for us. Again, Jeremiah tells us that God's heart is broken, that it has come to this for God's people. But sometimes the status quo just can't stand anymore. And now we may still feel uncomfortable, dissatisfied. That's okay. Among other things, there's this complicated mix between God as actor and then the events of history simply running their course. The Bible actually shows people feeling that mix as well. And for us today, following Jesus, it can be more challenging still because people are quick to say that such and such cataclysmic event is God's action, God's judgment, God's wrath. And then people will actually cite opposing events or movements that are at cross purposes with each other and ascribe them to God, fashioning themselves as modern day prophets. So what do we do with this as followers of Jesus? For one thing, we keep our understanding of God's wrath in the right storyline. It is a last resort, something God resorts to with a broken heart after centuries of trying every other way when God cannot do anything other than say no more to injustice. Second, we practice being people who listen to the warnings of books like Jeremiah, becoming people who put our trust in God, becoming people who build communities committed to bringing the goodness and justice of God into the world in all the ways that we can. And we engage that practicing work with deep humility, recognizing that complicated mix of human action and God's engagement. Third, we are people who pray. Prayer can sometimes be portrayed as a weak response, which is odd because praying to our God puts us in the best position to receive wisdom, to be infused with courage, to be reshaped in our understanding of the story and to play our part in it. When we gathered live together as a church, that's how we responded together to pray together, not generically, but specifically around the injustices we see in the world today. We prayed as specifically as we could for victims of that injustice. And we prayed for one another to be courageous, humble, and committed to engaging injustice in our own spaces. As you close the podcast today, 
why don't you take a minute to do the same? To name the injustices that have gotten under your skin and infused you with a holy anger over what's wrong in the world and to talk to God about them. To pray for the people you know who are affected by them. And to pray for the people that you follow Jesus with. That together you all would be faithful and courageous and humble in doing your part in living out the storyline of bringing goodness and love to this world. In Jesus' name.